John Babbler earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Texas at Dallas and studied one year at Princeton Theological Seminary. He then received master's degrees from Southwestern and the University of Texas at at Dallas, as well as his Ph.D. from Southwestern. Uh, He's currently um, working at Southwestern. He's been there since 1993 as an associate professor of counseling, as well as the director of the Walsh Counseling Center at Southwestern. Um, His his past experiences in ministry um, have have quite equipped him for um, this task. We're very excited about the um, the, the, the knowledge and the wisdom, um, especially in his counseling background, that that he has to um, to bring um, to us to share um, um, with us. He is the father of eleven and grandfather of five. Um, and um, we're, we're very excited to, to have this. So I know, I think, okay, why are we in Acts 17? Well, I came across this verse, and I, I, I was, I've, just, I've just been itching to share this with you, completely out of context. But So, Acts 17, 18, maybe, maybe you're with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Some of the Epicureans, so I'm reading Acts 17, 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? (laughs) We are excited for what Dr. Babbler has to say um, to us (laughs) this evening um, as we consider the snare and and the Savior. Um, But before he comes, we are going to worship together as Paul leads us Um, Paul will then pray, and Dr. Babbler will come address us. Great to be with you here this evening. I have uh, been praying and preparing and thinking for this, thinking about this for a while. I wanted to start tonight, the emphasis we're going to have on this first session deals with the idea of the heart of the problem. I don't know where you're at, and and it's a diverse group. You could be married, you could be single. Uh, I'm not sure where you're at in life because I don't know you. I've met most of you. I'd like to uh, certainly meet the rest of you before the weekend's over. But the reality is I won't get to to know you very well in the short time we have together. Uh, I don't know what you're struggling with, what you're not struggling with, what your victories are. I'm not sure where the Lord finds you tonight, and that's really what's most important is not what I would know or not know or what your friends know or not. What's most important tonight is where the Lord finds you. And and that's been my prayer is that God would give all of us a sense of openness to him. Uh, Because ultimately we could come here this weekend and we could go through the motions and you could answer the discussion questions and, and, and you could do everything and walk away totally unchanged. And, and, and the reason is because of the fact that you don't, let God address the issue of the heart. And now the issue of the heart's important and it's significant. One of the reasons it's significant is because the biblical understanding of heart is, is different than the, than the world's understanding of heart. Uh, Western culture mindset, we tend to have a head-heart dichotomy. There was a sermon in the late 80s that made its round, I almost missed heaven by 18 inches. 
Because I believe Jesus here, but I didn't believe him here. Well, that may preach. Well, actually it doesn't because it's not biblical. Because the biblical dichotomy is not a head-heart dichotomy. The biblical dichotomy is an inner-outer dichotomy. And we'll look at Scripture a little more specifically on that in in a minute. I have, uh, in the midst of my 11 children, they're all gifted differently. They all have different interests. And uh, this spring I had the opportunity to go with my uh, 15-year-old daughter... Uh, who's uh, very good at basketball and uh, got to go to a a state and a national homeschool basketball tournament. And in the midst of that, I saw her and her team uh, lose a couple of games. And and at the national level, they lost one game that they definitely should have won, and they lost one game that they could have won. And uh, I might be able to help a little bit on the football field, but I can't help at all on the basketball field. So basketball course, yeah, I even called it the wrong name. So anyway, uh, the reality is, so as I, you know, my heart goes out to my kids, I want to help them. And so as I'm thinking, you know, what can I do to help this team that's playing below its level? See, what, what happened was they, they looked at some things that they saw and they became intimidated. They, they became intimidated by what they saw in regards to the other team. They became intimidated by height. And actually having watched the warm-ups, the skills were a whole lot better on our side than they were on their side. And, and, and so one of the things that we have to keep in mind as we address this issue is that there is truth and there is lie. And we talk about in the counseling arena, the biblical counseling arena, we talk about sexual sin as being a life-dominating sin. And, and the reason we refer to it as a life-dominating sin is, well, because it is. Because people that struggle with sexual sin and sexual temptation frequently struggle with it for, like Dale said, a lifetime. It's not something we wake up one day and say, gosh, I'm free from that. Um, and, and as Dale also pointed out, it is definitely something that no matter how much we try and no matter how hard we try to do it on our own, we're not going to be successful. The focus is God's going to have to be the one that changes our heart. Now, the challenge there is the fact that well, let me give you an example. When, when people come for counseling, sometimes we'll have them fill out an information form. And on the back of that information form, we'll ask them, why are you coming here? How can we help you? And, uh, and they'll list out their problem or their problems. It's real interesting. The men list two or three things. The women write the full front page and the back page. And, but anyway, uh, that's a, a topic for another retreat. But uh, the, the reality is they, they list these things that they're struggling with. And then the next question we ask is, What have you done about it? 90% of the people write, I've prayed about it. And that's it. And I ask them, what else have you done about it? I've prayed about it. I've waited for God to come down and just fix it. Yeah, that's not the biblical model. Why? Because God requires something of us as well. On the other hand, the biblical model is not the... And if you struggle with sexual sin and sexual temptation... There are probably lots of times where you have promised yourself and committed never to do it again. And if you're like most people who struggle with this arena and other sin arenas as well, within a short period of time, you've probably done it again. And you've come to realize pretty quickly over time, in fact, sometimes some of you may may be here tonight with very little hope because you've tried everything you know how to do to not do it again. And you're still struggling. And, and, And the good news I have for you is that I think that If you're open to what God wants to do, that uh, not that you'll be fixed this weekend, not that the temptation will go away, but you'll have an ability to depend on God and be in a recognition of what he wants to do in your heart so that he can address 
that temptation and that challenge that you have. But as I was reflecting on the, this situation with my daughter's basketball team, I started thinking, well, you know, a lot of this is a mental issue. Uh, a lot of this is, is what they were thinking. And a lot of what we do in, in, in life and, and what I do in ministry, ministering of the word is, is to help people, again, recognize that there is truth and there is lie. And we can't believe the lie. We've got to believe the truth. And, and that is part of the, the paradigm shift that God wants to bring about. Uh, and I saw, thought well, maybe I could go, and I know enough about sports to realize you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of work that's been done in regards to mental preparation, mental toughness, and the mental game. And I thought maybe that's something I could do this summer. Maybe I could, I could uh, spend some time learning about that, and, and, and maybe I could, could help with encouraging at least my daughter and maybe some of her teammates. I've got a son that's uh, in spring training for football, be playing football in fall, maybe even the football team. Maybe that's something I could, I could bring to the table. And I started thinking, you know, but it's not just mental. Because as I'm watching these, this is a Christian homeschool basketball tournament, both at the state and national level. As I'm watching these tournaments, I'm thinking, what's that? Because, you, you know, when your team's lost and you're watching them, I mean, you know, what, what do you do? What do you think? Or that's what I do anyway. Um, and, and so as I'm thinking, what, what sets apart a Christian homeschool basketball tournament from a non-Christian homeschool basketball tournament? And I don't have a lot of time to, to spend watching sports. I, I enjoy sports, but got other things, including 11 kids to deal with and ministry, a few other things. So I, I just, I'm not a, a real fan. I, I like to watch when my kids are involved, but, uh, you know, I don't, and, and so I don't, I don't get some of that. But as I'm looking at, you know, what, what's important? How does this play out? I began to realize that it's not just the, the mental game. It, it, it goes beyond that. And I started thinking that the distinction between the Christian and non-Christian wasn't what it should be. In fact, as I shared this, doing some biblical counseling certification training a couple weeks after this tournament, one of the guys in my class came up and said he was a pastor um, and a, a fire chaplain as well. And he said, you know, I used to officiate. And he said, the last 10 years, the last five years of officiating, he said, I wouldn't ref Christian tournaments because they were worse than the secular tournaments. You know, he said, I just wouldn't do it. And I thought, isn't it interesting that he saw that as well? I'm just wondering. And, and so all that to say, you know, what I began thinking is here's the issue. The issue is not the mental toughness in the game. The, the issue is not even the behavior on the court. The issue is a heart issue. And I started thinking in the context of sports that maybe what we need to focus on is not just the training of the, the physical heart, but maybe we need to focus our, our youth and our children on the training of the other heart as well. The mind, will, and emotions, and we'll look at how Scripture speaks about that in a minute. But the bottom line is that from, from the basketball court to our life, God's concerned about our heart. He's concerned about not just what we do, but He's concerned about our mind, will, and emotions. He's concerned about the inner part of our being. And so that's what we're going to focus on a little tonight, and we'll focus on as we go through the, the two sessions tomorrow as well. But needless to say, the reason we focus on a retreat like this is because sex is everywhere. Uh, it is a life-dominating sin. It's one of the most effective tools the enemy has in his toolbox. Unfortunately, I counsel people, and I counsel primarily church leaders, seminary students, pastors, some lay leaders. When I counsel, unfortunately, I counsel a lot of people who are involved in sexual sin. Howard Hendricks did a study a number of years ago where he looked at um, over 300 pastors who had lost their ministry because of adultery within a one-year period. 
It's interesting, uh, my research in statistics, or my PhD language was research in statistics. And so one of the first things that struck me about his study was the fact that he found that many pastors that not only had lost their ministry in a one-year period, but were willing to talk to him about it. Because my guess is there are a whole lot more that weren't willing to talk to him about it. And so just the sheer number of pastors that had lost their ministry because of it, and the fact that there were that many that were willing to talk to him about it, gave me just a little bit of a picture of the significance and the challenge that, that not just we, but everybody in the, in, in the church faces. He found some things interesting as he researched this. He, he found some constants in regards to these pastors who lost their ministry. And, and one of the things that he found was all of them lost their ministry by counseling women. You know, Dale made the comment about the fact that he was very careful where he went. Well, we're going to talk about that more in the second session tomorrow, the third session uh, of, of our weekend together. But, uh, but the reality is all of them lost their ministry because they were counseling a woman. Another thing that was constant among them, if I'm not mistaken, it was 100, but at least 90% of them said that they had no regular devotional time with the Lord outside of their preparation for preaching and teaching. Nothing in the Word, nothing regular in regards to that. And the other thing that I know that 100% of them said was, it will never happen to me. It'll never happen to me. See, the reality is there, there's a heart issue there. It's not whether they were pastors, it's not their role, it's not their, it, it's a heart issue. And, and God's concerned with our heart issue, but the reality is that sex is an area where the enemy tempts us. I mean, all you've got to do is turn on the television or drive on the freeway and you'll see that sex is used to sell everything. You know, there are sexualized advertisements in every context. We see it day in and day out. We're bombarded with it. And so, you know, why do we deal with addressing such a topic? Well, duh, it's because it's everywhere. And we recognize that. But, you know, it's not a new problem. Now, I will agree with what Dale said. Things have dramatically changed. Um, and, and I'm a little younger than Dale, but things have dramatically changed since I was growing up as well. I mean, if you wanted pornography when I was growing up, it cost you something. And whether it's the hiding in the garage or, or going across town so you could go to a drugstore and buy something where nobody would know you. or I mean, it cost you something. Uh, the idea of, of falling into it with a, a single mouse click, that, that didn't happen. In many respects, we need to keep in mind as we address this issue, and it's not going to get better. But as we address this issue that, uh, again, I mentioned research and statistics. Well, you're, most of you are familiar with the idea of a bell curve. Well, the reality is when we look at the way our culture has grown, we actually have a, a kind of a J-curve uh, where, where for much of history, things progress like that. And now all of a sudden, they're going straight up. Think about for how many thousands of years the fastest mode of transportation was a horse. My dad was born in 1918, um, and he learned to drive in a Model A. Think of what he saw before he died between a Model A and landing on the moon, the, the challenge and the growth of what's happening in our culture has been significant. And, and, and again, whether it's that or whether it's the context of technology and the easy access to things, both positive and negative, we need to recognize that we live in a context and time where the discoveries are doubling and tripling based on what they were just a short generation ago as far as the the development time and how that plays out. 
But that said, this idea, even in the midst of such uh, um, growth and such change, uh, this idea is not a, a new issue. It's not a new problem. Uh, you can look at Job in Job 31.1 where he says, I'd made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze upon a virgin? Uh, he, he recognized the fact that he needed to, to, to make a commitment to God in regards to what he did with his eyes. And, and so it's not a new problem, even though the context may be new as well. Uh, one of the books you got that we will look at briefly tomorrow, I want to make some points out of and draw your attention to certain chapter, uh, a certain chapter in it. One of the things I like about uh, Heath's book, Heath Lambert, uh, who's a professor at Southern and, 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 a, and a friend of mine, uh, but one of the things I like about Heath's book is he says, you know, the bottom line is that a lot of the Christian books on dealing with sexual temptation and sin spend a lot of time talking about statistics, how prevalent and how prominent sexual sin is, the, the cost, the revenue, and everything else. And, and he said something that I've known for a long time, and that is the fact that I've never seen anyone turn away from sexual sin when they realize it's a billion-dollar industry. Okay? That doesn't have any impact on people. I've never seen anybody turn away from sexual sin when they realize how prominent and how prevalent it is. Why? Because those things don't have an impact. And so that's what he says in the book. He said, so that's not what I'm going to be about. The other thing I really like about the book that I commend to you is the fact that he said, unfortunately, there are a lot of books out there on sexual sin written by Christian authors that are uh, blatant enough that they actually cause people to stumble and sin because of the content of the book. And uh, Heath has a daughter. He said, I want my daughter to be able to pick up this book and not be offended or tempted. And so I appreciate his commitment uh, to do that as well. Uh, but the bottom line is, while statistics don't motivate uh, and don't bring about change, it is important as we lay a foundation to realize that, you know, lives and families and ministries are destroyed because of sexual sin. You know, Dale also mentioned the, the consequences and the costs. And, and unfortunately, I've had the opportunity to deal with people who have have literally come close to losing everything except their life and dealing with some in prison uh, that have lost even their very freedom because of sexual sin. And so that said, I mean, we need to recognize the fact that that's a reality, uh, that, that the idea of being able to skate with sexual sin is probably not going to happen. So what, what do we do with this? Well, one of the things we need to recognize is the fact that Scripture does speak to sex. It, it does speak to that temptation. It speaks to, to sexual issues. It speaks to a biblical perspective of what sex should be. God did create it, after all. Um, <clears throat> and the reality is it speaks to it in a way that is in direct contrast to the way the world speaks to it. I had a man come to me for counseling, and um, he and his wife, uh, they were in their 30s, uh, had two children, uh, 10 and 12, probably somewhere in that age range. Uh, he came and he sat down next, uh, across from me next to his wife and he said, uh, I'm addicted to pornography. He said, I've been addicted to pornography since I was 15 years old. And he said, and, and he started talking. And then he started telling me about all that he'd read. He told me the Christian books he read. He told me the secular books he read. He was well-read on sexual addiction, much more well-read than I was. And, and he kept talking about sexual addiction. And the first thing I thought about is in dealing with him, one of the things I want to help him see is that the biblical perspective of what he is struggling with is not that it's an addiction, but that it's a sin. And so I thought, how am I going to move him from an understanding of this as an addiction to the understanding of this as a sin? 
And so I asked him, I said, let's say I'm a pastor from Africa. And I look at you and I say, you know, I'm here to help you and I really want to, but you keep talking about this sexual addiction. I don't understand that. Can you explain that to me? And he looked at me and said, well, that's a good question. That's not quite what I expected. I expected at least one of the definitions from one of the books that he'd read. And he thought for a minute and he looked at me and he said, it's like something has me around the neck and won't let me go. And I thought, that's a good description. Not quite the definition I was looking for. And so then I thought, well, in my quest to help him understand that God sees this as a sin issue, how, how could I take the next step? And so I turned to his wife because one thing I found is that wives generally aren't very understanding of their husband's sexual pornography addiction or whatever else you want to call it. And so I looked at her and I said, maybe she could become a co-belligerent with me. And I looked at her and said, what do you think about it? And she said, yeah, it's like something has him around the neck and won't let him go. And I thought, well, it didn't do quite what I wanted to do. So, so the next thing I said, okay, so, so when God, because they both gave testimonies of commitment to the Lord. And, and, uh, and, and I said, so when God looks down and sees you, even in the church office accessing this pornography on the Internet, what do you think he said? What do you think he thinks? And he looked at me and said, I've never thought about that before. So here's somebody who's read all these Christian books. He's never thought about what God, anyway. Um, by this time, I'm a little impatient. I said, well, let me tell you what he thinks. He thinks it's sin. So we went ahead and spent some time together and we talked about his relationship with God. We talked about his heart. We did a number of things. I gave him some homework in the midst of confronting him with the fact that what he was dealing with was a sin issue. And he came back the next week and he said, thank you for having the boldness to tell me what I was dealing with is sin. It's the first time I've heard that. And he said, and the reason I'm thanking you is because of the fact that if it's a sin issue, that's good news. Because the best I could hope for before I heard you tell me that was that the grip around my neck might be loosened. But he said, Jesus came to set sinners free, came to set captives free. If it's a sin issue, I don't have to have that grip around my neck at all. He said, for the first time I have hope, but the hope wasn't adding a, a, a prayer to his daily mantra or his reading or his understanding of addiction. The hope was a heart change. And that's what God desired uh, to bring about uh, in his life. And so one of the things that, that we keep in mind as we address this issue, Scripture speaks to it, but the, the terminology and the perspective that Scripture has is going to be different than the world's perspective. I already mentioned a diverse audience. I don't know you, but I know some are single and young and some of us are married and old. And the reality is you might be surprised, but we're going to spend several hours together talking this weekend in the context of a retreat about overcoming sexual temptation. We're not going to talk a whole lot about sex. We're not even going to talk a whole lot about sexual temptation. We're going to talk a lot about our heart. We're going to talk a lot about God. We're going to talk a lot about his word. And we're going to talk a lot about how he desires to bring about heart change in us. And, and the benefit you get from this is that not only will this have application to the struggles you have with sexual temptation, but it will have applications to any temptation or struggle you have. Because, see, for some of you, sexual temptation and sexual struggle and maybe even sexual sin may be off the chart. For others of you, it may be an issue, but it may not be off the chart. But there's something else that you're struggling with as well. 
And one of the great things about biblical counseling is that, you know, when God desires to change our heart, it really doesn't matter what we're struggling with, but when we learn and understand the biblical process of change, that biblical process of change applies to sexual temptation, other temptations as well. And so that's what we're going to have the opportunity to look at. Now, it's important. I want to just just lay a little bit of a foundation in regards to to my commitment, my understanding of Scripture uh, and and God's Word. Uh, I had uh, trained initially... Um, in my uh, graduate education, both at Princeton, at UT Arlington, and, and at Southwestern Seminary, uh, I'd been trained that the most important thing and the way you would effectively minister to people and counsel would be to integrate the best of the world's wisdom into my theology and my biblical understanding. And God confronted me at some point in time and said, no, really the Bible's sufficient to deal with people's problems in living. And so I began teaching and began practicing a, a counseling and a life and a ministry based on the fact the Bible is sufficient for the counseling task. Not only is it sufficient, but it's superior to anything the world has to offer. Amen. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. And so I just want to briefly remind you of a couple of passages in Scripture that Scripture speaks about itself. And, and the first one is in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. And, and you're familiar with those verses. When I went off to Princeton Seminary, um, I, I went to Princeton knowing what I was getting into. I was a conservative evangelical. I, I knew what I was getting into at Princeton. Well, basically, there were still some surprises. Uh, I knew what liberal was, but I learned more effective. I, I, I learned it was a lot worse than I thought, maybe. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> I, I, was ex- I was expecting that liberal influence. And um, when I went to, to, to Princeton Seminary, there was approximately 1,000 students uh, on the campus at that time uh, in the early 80s. And I'm aware of two of us that believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, two out of 1,000. 2 Timothy 3.16 was a very important verse for me. All Scripture is inspired by God. See, my wife, she wasn't my wife at the time. I'd met her before I went to Princeton and. Uh, she flew up during Thanksgiving holiday. I actually proposed to her that Thanksgiving in a horse-drawn carriage in Central Park. Um, and in the midst of that visit, though, we went out with uh, some of the seminary students. And, and she was a, uh, a special ed student at Texas Women's University, undergraduate special ed student at Texas Women's University. And she sat down with these Princeton seminary students, graduate master's degree students, and she asked them a question that they couldn't answer. She said... If all of the Bible isn't true, how do you decide what is and what isn't? And they didn't have an answer. I thought, well, that's pretty good. Good question. I like that. <laughs> the, the reality is that 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, for training in righteousness. Uh, scripture is in, it's literally God-breathed. It's inspired by God. We need to recognize that as we look at this issue that we're dealing with this weekend, Scripture is God's word to us. And, and in light of that, what scripture provides for us is God, the, the very words of God. So we need to, to recognize and, uh, and, and focus on that. And, and it's interesting because not only does scripture, the second Timothy three sixteen tell us that all scripture is God breathed, but it also tells us what it's useful for four categories, summary categories, teaching, correction, reproof, training, and righteousness. We feel comfortable in the American church with two out of four of those. Teaching and training in righteousness. The correction and reproof, we don't do very well. And again, that's a subject for another retreat. But the, the, the reality is that God's word does reprove. 
And God's word in the midst of you doing life together in the context of this fellowship, some of what God may call you to do is to reprove each other, to speak the truth in love in regards to this very subject. But verse 16 is followed by verse 17. And I came to see the significance of verse 17. All scriptures inspired by God, all God breathed, profitable teaching, correction, proof, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is able to equip us for every good work. So here's the way I look at it. If, if counseling in the context of the ministry of the church is a good work, God's word is able to equip us for it. So when we, we look at this, God's word is indeed sufficient. It's sufficient for that counseling task. It's sufficient for ministry. Uh, when I think about 2 Peter chapter 1, we see where God says, God has granted to us everything necessary for life and godliness. Not just godliness, but he's granted to us everything necessary for life and godliness. And, and I mentioned that not only is God's word sufficient, but it's superior to anything the world has to offer. It's qualitatively different than the wisdom of the world. Hebrews 4.12 says God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, wait a minute. Here we go again. Wait a minute. You're already talking about correction and reproof. Here we're talking about stabbing and stuff. No. Piercing as far as the division and soul. See, we like to think of God's word in that pat us on the back, make us feel good. No. God's word, part of that is to lay us open to the bone. That's the, the picture in the Greek there is division lays us open to the bone. And if you've been a Christian any length of time at all and study God's word, you've had that experience where under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, God's scripture, God's word has, has, has laid you open. And, uh, but, but, you know, not only is, is God's word living and active, not only is it it's qualitative, unique, but it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And, uh, and, 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 and looking at the thoughts and intentions of the heart is very important. Uh, we'll get to that here in just a minute. We'll look at that a little, a little more uh, in depth. Uh, but as far as just kind of a foundation of God's word and a reminder uh, along the lines of Second Peter 1, where Peter said, I don't hesitate to remind you of that which you already know. Uh, I, 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 as, as with Peter, I hope to stir you up by way of reminder that, that when we're coming here and looking at this topic, God's word's what we need to address it. God's word will give us what we need. And it's not some kind of a mechanical, oh, well, you know, here, take these two scriptures and call me in the morning and you'll, you'll, you'll be able to deal with this. No, it's in the context of the Holy Spirit working on us. It's in the context of the Holy Spirit changing our heart. Isaiah 40, verse 8, uh, God's word is eternal uh, as well. Uh, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever, even as God is. And we can rest in that as we minister to others. Uh, seminary professor, I've got to do this. I have some homework for you tonight. Uh, there'll be some questions that you'll have in a minute too, but this is, this is my homework. Uh, in addition to the questions sometime tonight or in the morning, I want you to carve out the, the 15 or 20 minutes it'll take. I want you to read Psalm 119. Now, the only thing I used to really know about Psalm 119 is that when it came up on my annual reading plan, I'd be late to work that day. Uh, all 176 verses. But in the context of what we're looking at, in the context of this issue, I want you to be reminded of the power of God's word. And uh, I don't think there's anything like Psalm 119 to do that. So some homework, and we may discuss that uh, briefly uh, tomorrow. <clears throat> the idea of a snare, I don't know, how many of you have uh, trapped? How many of you are trappers? Okay. Uh, I'm uh, one or two, maybe uh, that's, that's kind of uh, not, that's not something that's beyond my realm of experience. So when, when I think about being trapped, when I think about snared, I mean, I can kind of come up with a picture, but, 
but it's not something that's in my realm of experience. And so I, I, I looked for some illustrations in regards to the significance of that. I came up with one that was kind of interesting. Uh, in, in Australia, there's a, a plant called the sundew. Uh, and, and the sundew has uh, beautiful red and, and white and, uh, and, and pink flowers. Uh, but in the midst of that, it also has these, uh, these leaves, and these leaves, uh, uh, they, they have little spines to them. And uh, if you catch them just right and see a picture of it, you see that the, the dew in the morning glistens uh, off, these, uh, off these spiny leaves. Uh, however, uh, looks can be deceiving. And uh, so in essence, what happens is that if an insect lands on one of these leaves, uh, it's stuck. It's snared. And as it tries to get free, it shakes. And as it shakes, there's a signal to the plant. And I'm not into botany or plants or anything. It's kind of beyond my comprehension how this would happen, except for a creator that would make this. Uh, the, the plant, the leaf is signaled to, to close over the, the insect. And then the plant eats it. And, and look with me at Proverbs 7, because, you know, I would say that that's a great illustration uh, to, to what Scripture challenges us with in regards to this issue of the, the snare of, uh, of sexual sin. Proverbs chapter 7. You know, Proverbs just great. There's so much in Proverbs. I mean, I, I sat down with my, my, my family today and talked about how wisdom and folly both call the same people in the same way. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a great challenge to kids to say, you've got to make a choice. But the bottom line is both of them are calling. Uh, you know, what a great picture there. I, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I find in, in, in Proverbs, we want to understand ourselves and others better. And sometimes churches kind of go to the world for that. And so, uh, you know, we, we'll go to personality typing. And so we'll bring this secular concept into the church and we'll say, well, I'm sorry if I hurt you, but I'm a choleric, I can't help myself, or I'm a golden retriever, I'm an otter, whatever I am. We come to understand ourselves based on some personality test, like the Bible doesn't tell us enough about ourselves, right? Well, the Bible tells us some things about ourselves, and spiritual gifts would be a good place to start if you want to understand yourselves and others better. But Proverbs gives us some great information about ourselves as well. In fact, if you really want a category like cleric and phlegmatic and those, Scripture in Proverbs can provide you some categories. So you could look at the wise man and the foolish man. The problem with those categories is that it's not something you just kind of say, hey, I'm foolish. That's just what I was born with. That's my personality type. I'm sorry if I hurt you. You know, if you're foolish, what? You're supposed to become what? Wise. And there's a clear distinction there. Uh, and then you have the, the wicked and the righteous, a clear distinction. And, and so Proverbs is just a great piece. But, but in regards to our consideration this weekend, uh, and, and you'll see this in Heath's book as well. I've used it uh, for a number of years also. But Proverbs 7, uh, beginning with verse 7. And I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, 
I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For the man is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions she entices him. With her flattering lips she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. And so whether it's a a nice little plant called the sundew or a beautiful, alluring woman, the reality is the aspect of being snared in the context of sexual issues is huge and it's very significant. So, so what do we do about that? And, and again, like I said, if, if you've addressed this and dealt with this, you've probably tried some things and, and, and have had varying degrees of success if you've tried anything except God's way. But, but God's desire is to cause us to give us the grace and to help us deal with the heart issue. And if you turn back to Proverbs chapter 4, we see a, a foundational challenge in regards to what God would have us do and how he would cause us to live our life. Proverbs 4.23, watch over or guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Guard your heart with all diligence. And again, Dale talked a little bit about that. Part of guarding our heart means that we need to be careful not to go where we're not supposed to be. But you know, the problem is that if we guard our hearts and just don't go where we're supposed to be physically, we can go where we're not supposed to be mentally. I deal with seminary students and pastors who, if you had a videotape of where they went, you would have no problem at all with their life. But if you had a videotape of what they thought, it'd be scary. And, and, and so the reality is that when, when Scripture teaches us and challenges us to, above all else, to, to guard our heart, that's the, the focus that we want to emphasize and begin contemplating and considering tonight. And so, so what is this heart that Scripture speaks about? I already mentioned that it's not the head-heart dichotomy that we see in our culture so much. It's an inner-outer dichotomy. If you look at Matthew chapter 15, uh, you'll, you'll see uh, a kind of a pretty clear perspective of what this idea of heart looks like, that inner-outer dichotomy. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 18. Matthew fifteen eighteen. Jesus says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And these defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. See, the Pharisees had just confronted Jesus about why the disciples weren't doing the ceremonial washing. 
And he said, you hypocrites, you spend all this time washing the outside of the cup when the inside is full of sewage. Don't you know that it's out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications? That's what defiles the man, not to eat with unwashed hands. Polishing the outside of the cup, that's not it. That doesn't do it. That doesn't solve the problem. You've got to deal with the heart issue. And so what is the heart when Scripture speaks of it? The heart Scripture speaks of is that inner part of our being, the mind, will, and emotions. And so when we deal with heart issues, we need to recognize that God's concerned with the inner part of our lives, the mind, will, and emotion, and that's what God desires to bring about change in, the, the mind, will, and emotion. And one of the things that's important to keep in mind as we deal with heart issues is to realize that Jeremiah 17, 9, and 10 tells us what? Tells us that the heart is deceitful above all else and, and, and desperately sick. See, the reality is that there is a, a battle that uh, is waged between the world, the flesh, and the devil. My oldest son, one time when he was about 16, we were having a good discussion, wasn't antagonistic at all, and he said something to me like, Dad, don't you trust me? And I said, no, I don't trust you. And you won't find that in too many parenting books, um, but you would in mine. And I said, no, I don't trust you. I said, but see, the problem, son, is I don't trust me either because I know the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I know that their desire... And they conspire together to trip you up. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 tells us the heart is deceitful, tells us that God is the heart knower. So how does he bring about heart change? How does he bring about heart change? You're sitting here today and you're thinking, gosh, I want that. I, I, I want God to change my heart. How does he bring that about? Well, first thing we have to acknowledge is the fact that we actually have a deceitful heart. That, that our heart is telling us what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. And, and, and we need to, first of all, agree with God that we have a deceitful heart, that there is that struggle between the flesh. There is that struggle between, as Paul said, the very thing he wants to do, he didn't do, and the very thing he didn't want to do, he did. There is that struggle. I mean, we could echo the words of David in Psalm 51, created me a clean heart. Oh, Lord, my God, renew a right spirit within me. He's going to be the one that's going to do that. And, of course, prerequisite to having that clean heart is having a relationship with Christ. Um, and, and based on my experience in, in counseling and ministry, I, again, I don't know you, but it wouldn't surprise me if there were one or two people here at least that, that actually hadn't made a commitment to Christ. That, uh, that you've been going to church, you've been going through the motions, but you haven't made that, that firm commitment to Christ. And, and that's going to be a prerequisite uh, to God changing that heart. It's going to be that transformation. If you read Paul's letters, you see a lot of what he emphasizes in his letters is this is what you were. This is what you are. Now act like it. But the reality is that if you haven't had that transformation that leads from this is what you were to this is what you are, you can't act like it. You're not going to be able to pull that off. But for those of us that have that commitment, that Christ is our Lord and Savior, for those of us that have that commitment, we recognize that God's desire is to change that heart. And the first step is that he's going to be the one that creates that clean heart within us. How's he going to do it? Remember Hebrews 4.12, we just looked at it. God's word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have a deceptive heart. How do you know what's real and how do you know what's not? Well, you measure it by the plumb line of God's word. If it lines up with God's word, then it's right. It's true. It's plumb. It doesn't line up with God's word. It's not. Well, but wait a minute. There are a lot of things in the Bible, like pornographic websites. Those things aren't in the Bible. Well, maybe not, but yeah, actually they are. 
even though you won't find it in your concordance. Why? Because of the fact that God is what? He's concerned with our heart. He's concerned with our thoughts. He's concerned with our mind, will, and emotions. And so because of that, God's word speaks to it. But you know what? There's this other challenging passage that says, anything not of faith is sin. Anything not of faith is sin. As we consider this issue of the heart, one of the things that's important to keep in mind as well is the fact that the world has a perspective of of anthropology or a doctrine of man, if you will, that is contrary to a biblical perspective of anthropology or doctrine of man. See, the world sees us as beings that are, well, uh, let me just the illustration I use frequently would be that idea of the empty cup. Some of you remember in the, in the 70s, there began to be some popular press books that were based on psychological theory that argued that, uh, that, that basically our problem in life, the reason we struggled was because we didn't have enough something. We, had our, we didn't have our needs met. And so our goal in life was to have our needs met. And so people started talking about filling your love tank or filling this, your hunger tank or this, that. You got to have these empty, you got to fill your tank up. And Christians got a hold of this and said, <clears throat> excuse me. They got a hold of this and said, okay, yeah, this empty cup, that's a, that's a legitimate representation for anthropology. And, and the reality is empty cups, we're, we're beings that go around just trying to, to have our cup filled, have our needs met. That's our goal in life. And so you have some Christian folks that got a hold of that and said, yeah, that's it. But, but the reality is the only thing that will truly fill your cup is Jesus. Everything else, nothing will work. And the other part of this model is the fact that in the midst of us going through life and trying to fill our cup up, bad things happen to us and we get holes in our cup. So not only is our cup not full, but it's leaking. And so that motivates us to work harder to try to fill the cup up. And, and so whether we try, and sometimes we might try good things to fill the cup up. We might try career. We might try success. You know, we might try integrity. We might try good things to fill the cup up. Or we might try bad things. We might try alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever. We might try all kinds of things to fill the cup up. But the reality is, and again, the non-Christian saw this, was the fact that it, it, didn't, it didn't work. There was still something missing. And so the Christians got a hold of that and said, oh, what's missing is Jesus. So you've got to fill your cup up with Jesus. And then they went on to say, but you know what? Even if Jesus fills your cup up, you've still got holes in the cup. And so you're still needy. And uh, so the problem with this theologically, of course, is two things. First of all, I don't see any indication in Scripture that Jesus is to be our cosmic need meter. Second of all, I don't see anything in Scripture that says that when Jesus does come into our life, that all of a sudden we, we're still not going to have this perspective of being able. I'm not saying when God comes into our life, when we become Christians, we commit our life to Christ. I'm not saying that. We're automatically healed and changed of everything. But the idea of we're going to have these continuing holes that, you know, we can't address. No, obviously, God's desire and his ability is to provide for us in the midst of that. And so there is a different perspective as we think about our lives from a biblical perspective. And that biblical perspective is not that we are passive heart beings that things happen to, but that we are active heart created by God beings that are responsible for before him for what we do, for what we say, for what we think. And so the bottom line is, whatever your background, whatever your experience, whatever the traumas possibly in the past, in your past, uh, whatever the, 
the, the temptations in your past, whatever the sins in your past, even if bad things happen to you, you're still responsible before God for how you reacted to those bad things. There's a, a fascinating two-word verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It says, rejoice always. And, and one of the reasons it's fascinating is because there are no footnotes. Rejoice always, footnote one, except when there are no footnotes. It's just rejoice always. And so what that means is, even when bad things happen to us, we have to what? We have to rejoice always. Now, it's important to keep in mind the fact that rejoicing and happiness are not equivalent. They're not the same thing. Rejoice always doesn't mean walking around with a smile and saying, as some people did in the 80s, well, praise the Lord anyway. Uh, no, that's, that's not the focus. But, but the reality is God gives us the opportunity because of Christ in our life to have an abiding joy that allows us to rejoice always, even when bad things happen to us. And, and <clears throat> so the focus of our life is not empty cups that, that God needs to fill, the fill the, that, that, that even only Christ can fill. The focus of our life is that we're created by a holy, righteous God in his image. And we are created responsible before him for our lives. And apart from Christ, we're not going to be able to in any way do anything but that which Scripture would call be as filthy rags before him. But when we have that perspective and that transformation that comes with Christ in our life, that heart change that comes, then God gives us the opportunity to see what? To see change. Again, not because of our actions, but because of God and who he is. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians two fourteen. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual praises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ as we, Scripture teaches us, as we are temples of the Holy Spirit. God is within us. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. I, I guess the, the place where I saw this most clearly was... Um, uh, I came home uh, late one night uh, a number of many years ago, and my, my wife was asleep on the couch. And when I came in, I, she didn't wake up, and I noticed that uh, Politically Incorrect was on. It wasn't a show we watched, um, and, and it had just been on from she'd gone to sleep before it came on. And, and I'm watching it. I saw an interesting debate, a discussion. Uh, there were two men in coats and ties, and there was a frumpy looking man and a woman kind of artsy uh looking folk and uh and they were debating whether sex outside of marriage was right or not and so you could guess who was arguing which position and, and as i listened to this debate and discussion i realized that no matter what these two men in suits said they were never going to convince the couple nor the host nor the audience that sex outside of marriage was wrong it didn't matter what statistics they gave. It didn't matter what they talked about in regards to sexually transmitted disease. None of that stuff mattered. Why? Because a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. See, I think a lot of times we spend time in dealing with others around us. Uh, when I was involved in Raceway Ministry, one of my 
chaplains that I trained said, you know, one of the biggest problems we have in the church today is we try to clean the fish before we catch them. We're surprised when lost people act like lost people. I mean, lost people are supposed to act like lost people. Why should that surprise us? What's the significance of that? The significance of that is the fact that the way God brings about change is through Christ. We have the mind of Christ. That transformation brings a, a transformation in not just our mind, but our heart, our mind, will, and emotions. And so based on that, we have the opportunity to what? To be changed and to participate in that change. Matthew chapter 5. When I speak the truth and love to folks and call them to confess and repent and deal with sins, oh brother, you're just focusing on sin. Don't you know we live in the age of grace? Well, yeah, we do live in the age of grace. I don't have any problem with that theologically. However, it's the distinction and definition that people put on that. When I look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I don't see Jesus lowering the standard. I don't see, hey, it's okay now. The things that we talked about in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, that doesn't matter anymore. What I see is, if anything, him raising the standard. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, he doesn't say it's okay now. You've heard that it was said you shouldn't commit adultery, but that's okay now. No, he said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you, for it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to, to go into hell. God's always been concerned about that which he created for us. And that would be the, the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. From the beginning of creation, it was put in the context of appropriate biblical parameters the leave and cleave concept was introduced in Genesis. And it continues to be the principle today that's applicable in regards to marriage relationships. The prohibition on adultery uh, is, has been a constant throughout, the, uh, the, the, throughout time. <clears throat> and in the midst of that, Jesus comes in, in, in this passage in Matthew 5 and said, Hey, you've heard this, that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I want to tell you something else. See, it's not just about the sexual act, the physical act of adultery. I want your heart. I want your mind. It's about what you think. It's about your mind. It's about your will. It's about your emotions. It's about all of you. I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart that's a high challenge it's a high challenge because of the fact that we live in a world in a culture where nothing makes it easy not to look at a woman our flesh doesn't make it easy not to look at a woman 
women don't make it easy not to look at women, even those that want to dress modestly. It's like Dr. Patterson at the seminary says, it's not wrong to look at somebody and say, wow, God, you did a great job with that one. It's when you linger, after you make that initial comment and that initial admiration, that's where the problem comes. But it's not just the fact that we might encounter women who dress modestly. There are a lot of women who don't dress modestly. The advertisements, the fact that you can get on a news website and, and, and half the stories at the bottom of the website are sensual or sexual in nature. Uh, it's everywhere, like we started with. So what's the, what's the solution? The solution is heart change. And it starts, first of all, with a recognition of saying, God, I recognize my heart's deceitful. I want you to change my heart. And that's my prayer for you tonight. That as you move into these discussion questions that God works on each of our hearts and says, and brings us to a point of humility. When I counsel people that uh, are stubborn, and we're all stubborn, but when I counsel people that aren't open to change, one of the prayers that I pray for them is, God, do whatever it takes to bring them to an end of themselves. And for a loved one, that's a hard prayer to pray because sometimes that can be pretty messy. But that's, that is and will be my prayer for you tonight. God, do whatever it takes to bring them to an end of themselves. And my prayer is that it doesn't take much at all. Because when you're at that point where God has brought you and you've allowed him to bring you to an end of yourself, you're able to address that heart issue and you're able to recognize whatever manifestation of this Matthew 5 passage that you're in. It may be lingering glances a few seconds longer than it ought to be. Or it may be pornography a couple hours a day. But wherever you are in the midst of that, God's desire is to change what? To change your heart. And we're going to look tomorrow at some specific ways to move in that direction. But tonight, what I want you to get your, your heart around is what does this heart change look like? And to recognize that that's going to be the foundation of anything that God does in your life to bring you to a point of being able to either be out of the snare or at least be able to stand firm against sexual temptation. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you challenge us. But you don't just challenge us in regards to this area of sexual temptation. You don't just challenge us to be holy and righteous. You don't just challenge us that we're not to look at a woman with lust. You give us what we need to be able to do that. Father, I pray again, even as I just said, that you would bring each one here tonight to an end of themselves. Father, that you would begin the work of heart change that, uh, that all of us need. And that as you do that heart change, that brothers in Christ would come together in a supportive and encouraging way to show out tonight what it looks like to be part of the body of Christ. So, Father, I pray your direction and your blessing and your wisdom on the discussion tonight. And I pray that even as Dale quoted earlier, whether it's eating or drinking, discussing these questions, it'll all be done to your glory.
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.